0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they
1: want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A Colonna, and this is Nashville. 156 years ago, the Ku Klux Klan was created in Pulaski, Tennessee. It's just about an hour south of Nashville. Tennessee native and former Confederate general Nathan Bedford Forrest served as its first Grand Wizard. Last year, after years of protest by anti-racist leaders and activists, the bust of Forrest was finally removed from the state capitol. Earlier this year, the Southern Poverty Law Center said that the number of hate groups in Tennessee is declining, not because hate is declining, but rather because extremist and hateful ideologies are becoming more mainstream. This hour, we're asking what is the state of white identity in Tennessee and how do people who consider themselves liberal confront their idea of whiteness. But first, we all know that Tennessee is a town of trains, a lot of trains. For some, it's a rite of passage to get stuck in traffic waiting for that train to pass. I know it has happened to me. But what about when the train stops? That happens a lot around here. And some listeners wanted to know why. Our friends at Curious Nashville are always up for this kind of challenge. Here with some answers is Cindy Abrams, digital producer at WPLN. Hey, Cindy, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Khalil. Thanks for having me.
1: Pleasure to have you with us. So what's up with trains? How did this come to Curious Nashville's attention?
2: Yeah, so we had a listener write in and ask. They were act- actually specifically asking about the Fourth Avenue train, Um about why it stops so often and why it's permissible. Um, And we decided to take this and kind of look at Nashville as a whole and look at all of the train blockages in our city and why they're stopped and why it's permissible.
1: Okay, so you guys looked at the entirety of the city and its train blockages. Where are train-induced traffic jams most prevalent in our city?
2: So there's a number of them. what I ended up doing is the Federal Rail Administration has um, kind of a database of complaints about certain blockages all across Nashville. And so I analyzed that data and took a look at the most complained about blockages okay. in Nashville. And I think that gives us a little bit a better idea of which blockages are really impacting people. So the top complained about blockage was Douglas Avenue in East Nashville. Okay. Um, the top five, we've got Sadler Avenue, Delmas Avenue, Elmhill Hill Pike, um, and 4th Avenue South. So East Nashville and South Nashville.
1: All right. So you spoke with Santiago Quintero, who lives in East Nashville and often who has to drive Douglas Avenue to get to work. Let's listen. I found out just by trial and error that uh, more often than not, the, the street is blocked by, by the train, And there's never, there's, it doesn't seem to have a pattern. It can be at midnight or it can be at 3 p.m. Or it can be for five minutes or it can be for four hours. There's, there's no way to predict whether it's going to be blocked or not. So let's find Santiago some relief. Where did you go first to find some answers? So
2: I actually met uh, Santiago through a Facebook page called, um, is a, Train blocking Douglas. Okay, so, <laughs>
3: that's what it it's kind called.
2: Of <laughs> kind of started at the source of people being frustrated, um, and from there I went and I got some answers from um, the Metropolitan Planning Organization. Um, a freight expert there named Max Baker helped me understand why these blockages were happening.
1: So he is with the city, that's the department that handles all of these train dilemmas, correct? Correct. Now, if you don't have the chance to turn your car around and leave, one can find themselves waiting in front of the train for hours, before it actually moves. Here's Santiago again, talking about the time he could have been stuck in front of a train for the entirety of his shift at work. By the time I made it to the front, the train was still standing still. Then I left, I went to, to work and whatever, and when I came back, I came uh, through the same street, and the exact same train was there for my whole six-hour shift. I mean, that's got to be one, one hell of an excuse to try to give to your boss. Like, hey, I wasn't sick. I was stuck behind a train for the entirety of a shift. That's amazing. Now, Cindy, do you have any idea why these trains are being stuck in place for so long?
2: Yeah, so that's what Max Baker from the MPO really helped me understand. Um, there are three main reasons why you'll see a train stopped. Um, to start off with, a common reason is passing. So trains are sharing the rail lines, and um, often two trains will need to pass. Um and so, in that case, if one train will either have to use kind of siding or a second track to wait for one train to pass and then another will go through. okay. so that that process can take a while. Um A second reason is something called reclassification. So these trains are freight trains, and so often different freight cars have different destinations. So in this case, certain train cars will have to be um, removed from certain freight trains and attached to different trains so they can get to the appropriate destination. Okay. And the third reason is safety. So if there's trespassers, accidents, this will cause delays with trains.
1: Now, I'm fascinated. You were talking about Santiago, who is a part of the local group is the train blocking Douglas on Facebook with 800 other people. And the group has started to give regular updates, you know, if there's a train stop there. It seems pretty significant that folks had to take matters into their own hands like this.
2: Yeah, so I think there aren't a lot of resources for people who are impacted by these train blockages. I think a lot of them don't know why it's happening, and there's not an easy way to see if when you're driving to work, if you're going to be stopped by a train for 10 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe even a full day. So people started posting on this Facebook page saying, 10.22, train stopped. So before you leave your door, you can maybe have a better idea of if there's going to be a train there.
1: I mean, what else are people doing to keep each other in the loop about train stoppings?
2: Yeah, I think the Facebook page has been a great resource. Um other than that, there is a portal um, that actually Representative Jim Cooper recently um, announced that the Federal Rail Administration is looking for feedback on this new portal. Um, and it's a way for people to log complaints about blockages. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. I know that they have, we have Nashville Severe Weather on Twitter for big time weather alerts. A lot of people go, oh, I use that. I wonder if there could be a Twitter page dedicated to train stoppings as well. Now, a lot of people have their theories on why this has become a big issue. Tell me, what are some of the most common misconceptions about this?
2: Well, I think something that often isn't necessarily thought about is the fact that um these train lines were built 100, 200 years ago before a lot of Nashville is was what it is today. And so The city has kind of grown up around these rail lines and they haven't necessarily been able to adapt to new businesses and um, new neighborhoods. And so there is kind of this, uh, you know, dichotomy between the rail lines existing and the city growing up.
1: Have you ever been caught behind a train?
2: I have. I am a resident of East Nashville and I have been many times unable to cross to the other side due to the Douglas Avenue crossing. And to have recently become an active Facebook user of the page is a train blocking Douglas.
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) So what's next for this story?
2: So actually on June 30th, um, the U.S. Department of Transportation announced that $573 million is going to be available in grant funding for this issue exactly. It's through a discretionary grant program called the Railroad Crossing Elimination Program. Um, And cities are able to apply for this funding um, to create different safety precautions and also overpasses and underpasses for people to better get around these train blockages.
1: Cindy Abrams is a digital producer at WPLN. She joined us to answer a Curious Nashville question. If you have a question for Curious Nashville, head to WPLN.org. Thanks so much, Cindy. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're examining the prevalence of white nationalism in present-day Tennessee and how hate groups and their ideologies are affecting the politics of the state. Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. On Saturday, June 18th, members of the white nationalist organization White Lives Matter crashed a Juneteenth celebration in Franklin, Tennessee. With covered faces and white t-shirts, the group of young white men walked around carrying signs that warned against white replacement. White nationalist groups have been operating in public more often over the past few years as their views and ideals are becoming more mainstream. My next guest is a historian who is working on a book about racist bombings in Nashville. She's also a contributor for the Nashville scene. Betsy Phillips, welcome to This Is Nashville.
3: Thank you, thank you for having me.
1: Really, pleasure to have you for this show especially. And now, when you heard about the White Lives Matter protest down in Franklin, what was your initial reaction?
3: I was annoyed, frankly. Um, I wasn't surprised at all. I think we've seen an uptick, like you said, in white supremacist actions. So, but you know, Juneteenth is a celebration of freedom. It's people getting together to, you know, have cookout, hang out, you know, and it just seemed so particularly mean spirited and petty to be like, literally, we're going to come ruin your picnic because. We're angry and insecure.
1: Hmm. Insecure. Okay, I'm going to talk about that with you a little bit later. Now, it's been reported that they were holding signs that talked about the great replacement theory that many extremist groups and pundits have been espousing. Can you give our listeners a breakdown of what the great replacement theory is?
3: Sure. Um, There's a kind of surface level that just is I think probably something a lot of white people have heard relatives about even, that white people are becoming a minority in the United States and we're being, quote unquote, replaced by people of color. But among white supremacist groups, it's actually a little more convoluted than that. And they tend to believe that some group, usually the Jews, are... Breeding somehow Hmm. people of color in such a way or convincing them to overpopulate while at the same time convincing white people to become gay or transgender or whatever so that we don't reproduce, so that we will be replaced by minorities.
1: Okay, so secretly Jewish people are, are helping... African-Americans and other non-white people continue to get their population numbers higher to reproduce while at the same time convincing white people to not have babies. Exactly. Okay. Um, How long this, tell me this, this theory is not necessarily new, right?
3: No, no. Um, I think, and our other guest may be able to speak to this even more than I can. But this is an old Christian identity idea, um, which would probably link it back to at least the 1920s. And you know, obviously, in its early iteration, it was just a straightforward Jewish conspiracy that they believed that Jews and black people specifically were, I'm sorry, this is so unbelievable, but this mm-hmm. is the truth. Jews and black people were descended from Eve and the snake. Okay, And then white people were descended from Adam and Eve. So in their minds, there's this like apocalyptic almost fight happening between good and evil and between people who are less than human, but with these kind of mystical powers that they have inherited from... Their dad, Satan. Mm. So obviously, like any good conspiracy theory, you wouldn't spring that on a person right away, right? You start with the whole, like, we have to secure a future for white children because regular people are kind of like, oh, okay, that that seems reasonable, I guess. And then you slowly loop them into... Here's the crazy stuff about how, Mm -hmm. you know, the secret Jewish cabal is breeding people for their end purpose of whatever.
1: So it's not so much man was created in the image of God. It's more of white man was created in the image of God. Exactly. Now, abortion is on a lot of our minds recently with the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So what is the connection with anti-abortion rights and this great replacement theory?
3: Oh, right. Well, it exactly goes towards they are terrified of white women aborting white babies. And, you know, that's just even Uh. even if, you know, when people try to point out that like that's, you know, not necessarily like white women of childbearing age who are able to support children are not the demographics that end up having most abortions. It's, it's pretty clear that that's where their anxiety lies. Even when you drive by Planned Parenthood and you see who's protesting, it's white people. Uh-huh. And even if they say like, oh, this is a site of black genocide, it's really hard to like believe that because there aren't any black people there protesting. hmm uh-huh. So, you know, that to me is also like a a really big cue that this isn't actually it doesn't have anything to do with stopping black people from getting abortions.
1: Now, in your op-ed on the Franklin protest of the White Lives Matter heads, you said that it it, you said that this is, quote, a standard play from board losers, which is pretty direct. I'm really fascinated by this idea about boredom. Like, what do you mean when you call members of these hate groups bored?
3: Well, I I mean, I was thinking even as far back as the founding of the KKK, which, as you know, happened here in Pulaski, Tennessee, where you had a bunch of white guys who were middle and upper class, but they had been completely cut off from their political power because they had been Confederates. So they're sitting around really with nothing to do. It's not like they can run for office. They can't do the kinds of political things that men of their station would normally do. So they come up with this basically like the Masons but evil.
4: Mm.
3: <laughs> and I think that that is clearly kind of an ongoing that we see in these white supremacist groups is that it is made up of people who really are looking for something to do that gives their life purpose that makes them feel like what they're doing is meaningful so yeah i mean like it really just seems to me like they're very bored
1: and (laughs) these terrible ideologies why is that particularly significant now
3: Well, I think because people feel so cut off politically, I mean, I think everybody just in general is like, wow, nothing we do is mattering in a political way. You know, everybody has been marching in the streets for everything. You know, women marched when Trump was elected. The Proud Boys have marched. You know, everybody on both sides has done the things that we've been told that if we do it, it will lead to cultural change. Mm. And no cultural change has happened. So I think that these folks feel like, well, if I can't get the change I want through traditional means, then I'm going to have to go to these kinds of extreme means. I need to force these confrontations. I need to force... I think a thing, too, that they really hope is that by being out and being public white people who feel like split or like they might want to join in, but they don't want to like take a stand will feel like they can take a stand. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really fortunate that we saw, especially in Franklin, a lot of pushback by both blacks and whites, because obviously like it is important to respond for white people to respond with like, no, you don't speak for me. That's not how I feel that's not the kind of America that I wanna work towards.
1: Now, for my last show in New Mexico, I interviewed Tony McAleer. He is a former racist skinhead who left the group and changed his views. He said part of his transformation was the realization that many of the leaders of these extremist groups are, in a sense, charlatans with hateful beliefs. Now, in your op-ed, you imply that the white supremacist movement is not one that exhibits much, much solidarity. Right. What, why is that?
3: Well, because in general, they're terrible people. So when you can coalesce around one thing that you all agree to be terrible about, then that's great. Then you're focused on that one thing. Like, OK, we're going to go out. We're going to harass these black people. But when you don't have anything else going on, you're still terrible. <laughs> they I mean, the I wouldn't even say that they tend. They do turn on each other. The mm. research that I've been doing is just everybody sleeping with everybody else's wives, them getting in big fights about it. That, you know, we talk about the Ku Klux Klan as if it's the Ku Klux Klan, but it's actually all of these little splinter groups because they can't get along. Mm. And so I think that that's really like, on the one hand, It feels really overwhelming, like, oh, my gosh, look at all these hate groups. What are we going to do about it? But on the other hand, the reason that there are so many is because they will split up for any reason. And usually because they're doing terrible things to themselves. Like, I forget the name of the guy, but, you know, there was very recently, like within the past five years, the racist who slept with his dad's new wife. You know, like, uh. this is not a way to behave. This is, and you know, I mean, it's kind of that old joke about like, well, if, if whites are supreme, why do you, why are you guys so gross? But it's also, there's like a ring of truth to it, too, that these people are, who are holding themselves up as, as a, as so great, are behaving in these ways that are really
1: vile. What do you think that means for the present day iterations of the movement, these behaviors?
3: Well, I mean, I think that it, it's kind of bad news because it means that in order to keep the groups coherent, they have to have outward violence to participate in. So I think that we will see an, a continued rise in violent extremism because that's, how, that's what they do to keep the group together.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about white nationalism and white supremacy movements in Tennessee. Tweet us your questions at thisisnashville. I'd like to bring in my next guest. Daniel Sharfstein is a professor at Vanderbilt focusing on the legal history of race in the United States. He's the author of Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White. Daniel. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, Khalil. So, you know, Betsy was talking about the great replacement theory earlier, and I wondered your thoughts on what might be driving the recent uptick in this great replacement theory rhetoric.
0: In some ways, I, I think of this as a sign of uh, how, uh, it, how we're so close to transformational change in this country that... Uh, we are, uh, it, there's an incredible emergence of, of new diversity uh, in this country. We've seen coalitions emerge that have elected people like Barack Obama uh, to the White House. And in so many ways, I, I think our, our racisms in the United States have always flourished uh, in times that are flush with the promise of freedom and equality. Uh, So, think about the Ku Klux Klan. It was founded here in Middle Tennessee, uh, not during slavery, but in response to emancipation and reconstruction, right? You don't need the Klan in a slave society. You have the militia, you have slave patrols, you have the institutional machinery and everyday violence of slavery. And we can think about, uh, you know, in so many ways, the... The rise of overt white supremacy, right? The uh, expression of and flowering of ideas about racism—they're all about how to reproduce and perpetuate hierarchies. Uh, first, in the absence of slavery, then in the absence of segregation, right? So, you know, we think about the Confederate flag, uh, mm-hmm. and you know it comes into its own and really uh, is redeployed, right? Has this new life uh, during the civil rights era, right? It's not something that is uh, waived for a hundred years. It kind of goes away and then it comes back, right? And it comes back uh, at a time when it seems like the traditional racial hierarchies of Jim Crow are going to be overturned.
1: Now, in the January 6th insurrection has been a lo- on a lot of our minds recently. We have a lot of things on our minds recently, you know, since Congress has been really holding these hearings over the past month, there are nearly two dozen Tennesseans who took part in that insurrection. And I remember a lot of people being really shocked at the events that day, the storming of our nation's capital. But that display was a culmination of years of white supremacist threats and demonstrations, Right.
0: I think yes. Uh, it, I I think that the uh, January sixth insurrection. I mean, in uh, many ways, it's something that uh, we we haven't let ourselves quite think would be possible,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And uh, and it, because I think we we uh, never thought that people would uh, rather uh, burn down the country. Uh, than see uh, a country that is more egalitarian. Uh, and, you know, it's a
1: real wake-up call. For I, I believe for a lot of people, it was a wake-up call. Again, I was out in New Mexico. Not ne- Honestly, it wasn't necessarily a wake-up call for me. I saw these things kind of written in the ethers coming along, particularly as the protests of 2020 started to happen. And, you know, people started talking about the idea of whiteness. Let me ask you, Dan, when you look at Nashville today, what are some of the ways you see whiteness expressing itself?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think that there's plenty that's obvious, right? Uh, It's not just white supremacists marching. It's not just the Williamson County School Board meeting being overrun by by parents in a froth over critical race theory, right? Never mind that it's not what's taught in schools or it, that it's just a catch-all for for any honest instruction about slavery, segregation, civil rights. Um, it's about uh, the state legislatures' teaching ban, right? That stunts our our children's histor- history educations. It's about the ordeal of getting rid of the Nathan Bedford Forrest bust mm-hmm. uh, in the Capitol, right? This maze of historical commissions that are there to to protect a, a bust that had been in the Capitol since that venerable year of 1978, right? And uh, we can see it in redistricting, right? Uh, this year, which just took a hatchet uh, to Nashville's black vote, you know, alongside state policies of disfranchisement, all the fake concern about voter fraud, right? It, there's all kinds of ways it's very visible. And then there are the ways it's less visible. Hmm. So. On a scorching hot day like today, it would be great if we had public swimming pools, right? Outdoor pools. I would have loved to have been able to walk up the street from my house and go to the pool in Centennial Park, right? And there used to be one, but rather than integrate it in the sixties, the city literally buried the pool. Mm -hmm. Um, We can see it in a, a kind of an infrastructural level with city county consolidation right? Something that that happened in the early 60s, where, you know, in many ways, it was very good for Nashville. But in other ways, it it also occasioned just a massive dilution of black votes. You know, we'd have a black mayor of Nashville, uh, but for city-county consolidation. Uh, Think about how that drove uh, investment in schools in our ring suburbs, right? Placed the burden of desegregation overwhelmingly on black families, even as white families felt so victimized by by integration. we Can see it in our transit policies. We can see it in our affordable housing policies or lack thereof. Uh, Freeway building and urban
1: renewal, right? Jefferson Street in 65. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's not just Jefferson Street. It's uh, Hell's Half Acre. The whole backside of Capitol Hill leading through the farmer's market was a black neighborhood. It's erased. Um, I was doing some research um, involving the Works Progress Administration slave narratives from the 1930s, um, uh, interviews with with people who had survived slavery uh, who were in their 80s, and they list the addresses of all the informants, and I plotted them on a map uh, for Nashville. And so many of, they they kind of map along uh, Nashville's um, traditional black neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, post-civil war neighborhoods, so many of them don't exist, right? There's so many places that have been wiped out by not just the 40 going through Jefferson Street, but also the destruction of Hell's Half Acre, urban renewal, uh, and the 65, mm-hmm.
1: right? Going through, you know, what used to be the Bass Street neighborhood. Yeah. a um, question. You know, Nashville tends to, I've only lived here nine months, but Nashville is, gives the impression that its problems with racism aren't as bad as the rest of the state or the rest of the country for that matter, but I've been talking with people who don't believe that to be true. You know, so I'm going to ask, how has Nashville's inability to honestly address its history, how has that contributed to the current environment of hateful ideology?
0: Yeah, I, I think in, we live in a city that is constantly knocking things down and building new things on top of it, just burying what's there. and If you do that, if you're not aware of the deep history of racism and division in in the city, uh, alongside the deep history of civil rights struggles and struggles over over slavery and freedom, uh, then we we have less of a sense of who matters. Uh, We have less of a sense of who our policies should serve, right? Who counts as a Nashvillian? Uh, and who belongs,
1: Betsy? I see you nodding your head.
3: Well, I was also just thinking that you can see it in the way that Nashville and Memphis, Nashville sets us up as in opposition to Memphis, mm. with Memphis as you know a black city with all these crime problems and you know, just that they're and even that they're not really Tennessee, whereas we are a quintessential Tennessee city. But really, like when you consider the ways that the state legislature focuses primarily on Nashville and Memphis, we should be working together. We should be a coalition of the two largest populated cities. We should be lobbying together on things. We should be working together on things. And yet, wanting to distance ourselves from the quote-unquote black city Continues to harm both cities and it's, you know, like they're our natural ally.
1: Now, Dr. Sophie Bjork-James is a professor at Vanderbilt University who studies white nationalism. She wasn't able to join us today, but we caught up with her on Friday. She says that the Internet has played a particular role in growing and shaping the white supremacist movements we see today. Let's listen.
4: What these visionary white supremacists did is figured out how to spread their message as far as possible on the internet um, and go into every single space, as particularly young men are congregating, then they can use those spaces and the algorithms of these social media companies um, to spread like very extreme messages into bigger and bigger audiences. And they've been incredibly successful with that. Right. And I think that the different platforms have different um kind of qualities about them, right? Where Twitter is much more kind of about um politics and facts. But then if you go to um places that are um younger people are congregating on, um you know, like uh like Reddit or 4chan or formerly uh 8chan, there's more it's more about memes and images and um they call it posting. It's intentionally n- not trying to be about integrity and honesty. There's always a kind of humorous um, and ironic component to it, but that doesn't mean that the message is any less dangerous. What happens in these different online spaces is that you know avowed white nationalists who will spend time on on Reddit forums or Discord forums, where you know maybe it's not even a political community, maybe it's a community of young gamers, um, but will go to those sites and spread content, you know, about maybe it's, they start off with, you know, um, like, like misogynist or like anti-female content or anti-immigrant content. And then we'll eventually try to spread conspiracies about anti-Semitism and like this, the great, you know, what, what is called the replacement theory, right. That there's an explicit campaign by Jews and people of color to try to replace white people in the United States and Europe. And, it's It's been very successful at radicalizing, especially young men to commit violence.
1: Now, Daniel, you've also been tracking these moments, movements, right?
0: I mean, to so, some extent, uh, it, you know, mostly I think on uh, social media and the internet, I'm kind of a, mostly a bystander and a concerned and horrified parent, right? Mm. Uh, so, you know, I see the the kinds of, Uh, media that
1: uh, are you know just uh, bombard our kids right it's interesting that they're using misogyny as this gateway drug to get to white nationalism you know betsy can you talk about that a little bit
3: right well i think that it actually harkens back to something that dan said about that this is a very hierarchical worldview so getting young men to buy into one version of the hierarchy, you know, like, well, you're a man, you're supposed to be in charge. Where, you know, where's your woman? You know, (laughs) like, you're supposed to have that you were owed a woman and you don't have one, you've been cheated by society. You know, that's just a short leap to if your main concern as a young man is like, well, where's my girlfriend that I am promised by whatever. Hearing that, oh, the Jews don't want you to have a girlfriend because they don't want you to reproduce because they want there to be more... You know, all these things easily feed into each other. And I think that our society is still kind of geared towards accepting some level of violence towards women, especially in interpersonal relationships. So we as a whole society are less likely, you know, it's like, well, boys are be boys Of course they're going to, you know run their mouths on the internet or whatever. We don't see it as like a big problem until it blossoms into a big problem. But it is like this easy way to kind of get young men used to the idea of like, well, yeah, some people are lesser than you. And some people, you know, you you can talk bad about them and people will just laugh it off or you can make jokes and nobody will, you know, stand up to you about it. And we as a society, you know, we joke about women. (laughs) So Hmm. it's an easy way to kind of get them used to it. And then you can start bringing in more extremist ideas.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on white nationalism with a bent toward how we got here. Tweet us your questions for our panelists at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about white supremacy culture and how it's shown up in our state recently. Now let's reach back further into our state's history and explore how white identity has evolved over time. Vanderbilt professor Daniel Sharfstein is still with us. Daniel, you've written about legal the legal definitions of race how have those definitions played a role in our history here in Tennessee?
0: Sure. So for many years, uh, up through the early 20th century, definitions of race, who's white, who's black, uh, they've really varied from, from state to state, right? Who's slave, who's free, who's black, who's white. So someone who was legally black in North Carolina uh, would... Uh, conceivably be able to cross the border into Virginia, uh, mm. where they'd be r- white. Uh, North Carolina had a one-eighth rule, uh, where one great grandparent uh, determined your race, uh, whereas uh, Virginia had a one-fourth rule. Um, now, uh, as, uh, after the Civil War, uh, the, as segregation took hold of the South, Uh, In the 1890s, in the first decades of the 20th century, uh, that's when uh, these fractions, these blood quantum rules were replaced by one-drop rules. Uh Um, And Tennessee was actually a relatively early adopter uh, of one-drop rules, in part because Tennessee was so closely politically divided uh, between... uh, Democrats, who at the time were the party of white supremacy, and Republicans, who were mostly in the East, in the hills. uh, And African Americans emerged as a uh, swing constituency. And as a result, the the politics of race became very hard-edged. And uh, Tennessee uh, segregated its railroads and and adopted one-drop rules. Uh, relatively early as a uh, kind of a cudgel to uh, aggressively cut African-Americans out of the body politic uh, so Democrats could maintain political control over the state.
1: Now, speaking of legal definitions, people who are of Middle Eastern or North African descent are grouped under white on the census. That has a particular significance here in Nashville, right?
0: Sure. Uh, it, you know Nashville has... A uh, large uh, Middle Eastern population, right? Um, and in some ways, they, these rules have uh, always uh, affected how people uh, who are out s- outside of the traditional black, white binary, uh, how they think about uh, claiming their stake in America. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, for uh, immigrants, whether uh, regardless of where they're from, uh, you know, we've seen over history times when uh, groups have to think about alliances and analogies, right? Do we analogize our struggle to the black freedom struggle? Uh, or do we try and distinguish ourselves as much as possible uh, to say we are not like black people at all, so you should accept us as white people?
1: What other implications do might legal definitions have here?
0: Yeah, so, you know, when when we think about these legal definitions. Um, it, you know, One thing I think that is really important to keep in mind is that uh, the definitions change and they transform, right? And whiteness can be many things, right? And it has to be in a changing society. It's chameleon quality is what allows it to, to keep serving the purpose of keeping some people poor, uh, keeping some people rich. Right, keeping some privileged and others kind of immiserated and divided against each other. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's I, I think of these definitions as meaningless outside of what they do to our society. Right. So uh, Stuart Hall, he he called race uh, a floating signifier. Right. It's something that changes uh, in con- different contexts. Uh, but what doesn't float Right, what what is real, what isn't a fiction, uh, is the uh, it, it's not race, it's racism that's real, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, w. E. Du Bois was, was asked, uh, what is a black person? He says, when I'm asked what is a black person, I say, it's easy. The black person is is the person who has to ride the Jim Crow car through Georgia, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, I you know, it, I I think the same holds with with whiteness right? That uh, whiteness itself doesn't mean much. But what really means a lot are uh, the health gaps, the wealth gaps, the education gaps that are just inexcusable in 2022, right? When we think about home values, a lot of people in Nashville care about their home values. Uh, We we can read stories about how black homeowners have realtors come through their house, give them an appraisal, Right, and then they have they take every identifying uh, piece of art off the wall, right? Take their family pictures down, and someone else will come through, and think it's a white-owned house and give it a much higher value, right? So we think about who gets to realize the American dream, right? Whose homes uh, get to appreciate, and whose homes get devalued and polluted by. By factories and dumps and gas pipelines, right? Like what, what we saw in Boxtown in, in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Right. When we think about whose votes are diluted, right, and whose votes are boosted and, and magnified out of proportion, right? It's how we perceive police, right, in our everyday interactions with police and who gets taxed and burdened by intergenerational trauma.
1: Now, Dr. Sophie Bork James of Vanderbilt says that economic inequality has been increasing in our country since the 1970s, and that conversations around racial justice can create a kind of tension for white Americans who feel like they aren't able to get ahead themselves. Let's listen.
4: You know, the United States continues to be um, completely stratified by racial inequality. You know, as of 2019, black wealth was. of white wealth on average, you know, the black median income has been just 60% of white median income. You know, I'm a social scientist. And if we look at every kind of measure of inequality in our society, we see that racial inequality is, remains the backbone of our society. So if we look at health, African-American parents are twice as likely than white parents to have a child die before their first birthday right? If we like rates of maternal mortality are significantly higher for African-Americans that black children have a 500% higher death rate from asthma compared to white children. So the evidence is dramatic in demonstrating the reality of racial inequality is continuing to structure our society. Yet this is, there's for, especially for white Americans, there's a um similarly dramatic misrecognition of that reality. There's been um, surveys that have come out that have shown that a majority of especially conservative white Americans believe that white people are now now experience more discrimination than people of color. There's polling that shows that many white experience, white, white Americans believe that it's like racism is kind of a zero-sum game so in in that if people of color are achieving more equality, it will mean, more problems for white people.
1: Historian Betsy Phillips is still with us. Betsy, how significant is it that white people are seeing themselves discriminated against more than people of color?
3: Well, I was, I've was. i actually been thinking during our conversation that it's important to acknowledge that one of the reasons I think that we're seeing this uptick is that white people were shocked to see white people in the streets For Black Lives Matter. Hmm. I think that white parents were appalled and concerned and that that is part of what we're seeing is a massive backlash because they just hadn't realized that their kids were sympathetic and not just sympathetic, but saw themselves in community with people of color and believed them when they said, hey, this is how we're being treated by the police. So I think that Part of the reason that a lot of white people feel like they have it worse than people of color is because we are still so segregated and they don't know people of color. Because how could you think that if if you had friends who would actually speak openly with you about their own experiences, you wouldn't think like, man, my friend Khalil has it so great, I envy him, you know, because you would have talked honestly as friends about... The things that have troubled you, and so I, I think again, like part of maintaining whiteness is maintaining this segregation, because if we came together as a real community that listened to each other, you just couldn't think that. You couldn't think that, like you're at the short end of the stick. Like a lot of us are at the short ends of many sticks,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but we're, it's not because a few black people are able to, like, get an NFL contract or something. It's because the system doesn't work for any of us.
1: Now, Daniel mentioned that we see moments like this, like the rise of the KKK, its resurgence at very, like, pinpointed times where the country is making a cultural shift and a cultural change. Where do you see us going?
3: Well, I mean, I really would hope that people, that white people who have been in community with people of color would continue that. I think that that is just so vital to not let this kind of hysteria about whiteness cause us to pull back from these difficult conversations and from being in you know real relationship and caring relationships with each other even if it means hearing hard things about our own behavior and stupid things that we've done. It's the only way forward is together it's just it is it's the only way otherwise we're just going to continue to be a terrified society that hurts each other all the time and and we just can't work as a country that way it can't go forward this way
1: daniel 30 seconds
0: i i think that uh it, you know as we uh it, you know as we move forward uh, the key is not to give in to despair. You know, mm. We we see white supremacists marching. It doesn't mean that we've lost, right, the, that the forces of equity, that the forces of humanity have lost. In fact, it shows how close we are uh, to really seeing positive change in this country.
1: That is Vanderbilt Professor Daniel Sharfstein. He was joined by historian Betsy Phillips. Thank you both for coming on to the show and having this conversation. I hope we can have another one soon. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern Doreen Shernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are L'Orange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us about this episode at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil LaColonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.